Amen. Good morning, Harlem, Harlem. I want to thank Floor for that powerful testimony. Matthew for making a good choice. Says a lot about a person who they date. And you, brother, you, you hit the lottery. I hope you understand that. Let's go to God with the word of prayer as we continue on with our series of the Revelation Churches, the letter to the churches. Uh, let's go to God with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father God, we come before you thanking you for another day. Uh, Father, there are some people who did not wake up this morning, and we're grateful that you allowed us to. Father, we do pray uh, once again, not only for the Bryant family, but for all those who were who lost loved ones on that tragic accident. Uh, we, we pray that you'll comfort them, God, and help us to make the most of every day we get to live. Uh, we do pray for our sister Lou, who's going to lay her father to rest. And uh, we, we pray for uh, all of those in attendance today who has either lost a loved one uh, recently or within the past year or so, uh, still grieving. God, we pray that you'll comfort us, uh, that you'll give us the strength for the days ahead, and that you'll help us to make the most of our time here on earth. God, let my words be your words. Use me as your tool, God. Help me to communicate your heart, your mind. Uh, help me to not uh, veer off from your, to your word. And pray that we'll leave here with a deeper appreciation of you and who you are for us. And uh, your word, which uh, convicts us, strengthens us, emboldens us, and encourages us. God, we love you. Thank you. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So far, uh, we, looked, we looked at the church in Ephesus, and that was the, uh, the first church to receive a letter from Jesus. You know, this is the time of year when we're actually looking in our mail because we get our W-2 forms. And, and, you know, that's something you're kind of looking forward to, right? But have you ever gotten one of those letters from the uh, IRS that didn't have your W-2? So there's one that's kind of like, oh, I'm going to get some money. And then there's that other one like, ooh, I might have to owe some money. So you're not really looking forward to those kind of, there's certain letters we're looking forward to. Like I always looked forward to love letters from my wife, you know. I always appreciate that. Then when you have kids, your kids do little letters, they give you a little letters. You look forward to stuff like that. But then there's some notes that you get that you're just not really looking forward to opening. You know, like, hey, bro, can you read this? And I, I get my thoughts out better writing. And you're like, what is going to be in this letter, right? Or an email from someone. And, you know, we get different types of letters. Uh, you know, I don't know what the people in the churches were expecting when they realized they were getting a letter from Jesus. And so I, I just don't want to be a church where we get caught off guard. And that's the reason why we're studying these letters, because we want to learn from these churches what, what, why weren't they, some of these guys not moving forward? And why was there only two of them who were? And so I hope that you're taking these to heart as I am, because I really want, I want to get a good report from Jesus. So just putting that out there. Uh, so we looked at the church in Ephesus who was threatened to have their light removed because they stopped seeing suffering for Christ as an act of love. And they grew complacent and were encouraged to do what they did at first, to renew their first love, right? Last Sunday, 
we looked at the church in Smyrna, who was commended because their love compelled them to endure the intense trials. And Jesus, in fact, in his letter said, there's more on the way. But I, I'm, I'm encouraged because you've already persevered and you're going to continue to do so. And we took away, uh, you know, a point that if we endure, we will be ready for more. If we, if we persevere, if we hang in there, then we'll be ready for the different trials that come our way because we know that God will help us. Today we're going to look at the next church in our series, the church in Pergamum, or as it's otherwise known as the compromising church. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these few verses, so I'm not going to try to make this one long message. We're going to split this into part one and part two. So we're going to look at part one today, and then part two next time we get together. So let's start reading together in Revelation chapter two, verses 12. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, Revelation is not a book to be afraid of, all right? Uh, if you read through it, I'm actually studying through the book of Revelation, and I'm actually encouraged by the things that I'm reading, especially if you're on the side of God. It's a lot to be encouraged about. It's a book full of symbolisms, all right? So it's not to be taken literally. You can't take the whole book of Revelation literally, like the four-headed beast and, and all these different things, you know, so you got to you know, read it. And, and pray through it and get some commentary because otherwise uh, you'll think you're reading a script for the next Lord of the Rings movie. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You know, I, I would hate to be a real estate agent. And, you know, when you're trying to sell all the brights, like, oh, yeah, by the way, Satan lives right over there. And anyway, let's, t- let's go down this street. It's like he tells them twice. Satan has a throne in your city, and he lives there. That would not be an encouraging opening line to a letter. But let's keep going. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So he commends them for being faithful, even though one of their own was put to death. Then he goes on, and I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Christ himself is identified as he, him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, just 
just a little, give you a little background on, on this, this, uh, this city. Pergamum was considered, well, the sword was considered a, a Roman symbol of power and authority and judgment. Jesus, if you notice in his last letter, he also opened it attacking the authority, going straight at the Roman authority of that city. And here we see Jesus again, basically almost mocking him, saying, okay, well, since you have, you claim to have the sword of authority as your, as your symbol, but I'm the one who holds the double-edged sword. In other words, saying, I'm the real authority here. So Jesus is establishing his authority. He's saying, I have the authority to make this claim and to write what I'm saying, write what I'm writing. So here Jesus is, is, is going right after who has the real authority here. Now the word we know in Hebrews 4 verse 12, we know that the word, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So Jesus is using, he's saying my word. We know in John, in John 1, it says that he is the word. The word became life. So we know Jesus is referring to himself. I am that double-edged sword. I am that final authority. And there's no other word more important to you than me. And we need to make sure we, we, we keep Jesus as the final authority in our lives. That regardless of what is going on or what's said about, about around us, that we're not going to allow someone else's word or authority cause us to compromise our convictions. Jesus is established. He's telling the church, I'm that double-edged sword. And he's making a statement aimed directly at the Roman authority or the proconsul in that city because, you know, the city of Pergamum was the capital of Asia and it was... It was considered the administrative home of the Roman governor. Now, what's interesting about these proconsuls, these Roman governors, was that they were divided into two types of categories, right? There was one category who just carried out the normal administrative rules and, and regulations, but then there was another category who had what's called the right of the sword. Now, if you had the right of the sword, that meant you could put someone to death on the spot. That you could call for any individual to be put to death on the spot, without trial, without hearing. So these guys were given some authority. But even still, Jesus says, your authority is no match for mine. And he wanted the church to be encouraged by that. Now, apparently in verse 13, the right of the sword was used against Antipas, their brother in Christ. And, you know, as I'm reading this, just as we did in, in, in the Smyrna, you know, I thought, man, how would I respond? How would I honestly act if I had been in Antipas' shoes? If I knew that I'm about to be put to death for my faith, what would I do? Or even worse, what if my family was threatened to be put to death before my eyes unless I renounced my faith? This is what our brothers and sisters were up against. Okay, so 
you're willing to die for your faith. Well, how about are you willing to watch your loved ones die for your faith? You know, I think God, we live in a country where we have freedom of worship. And hopefully the day will never come where we're told to deny Jesus or be killed. Chances are it won't, but there are things that we said would never, we thought would never happen in our time, and it has. You know, we may find that our faith in Christ is about to cost us a friend or maybe a job. If that happens, I hope and pray that we have the courage of Antipas. In verse 13, Jesus describes the city of Pergamum as the place where Satan lives and has his thrones. You know, I thought, when I read that, I thought, that sounds like New York. Sometimes it feels like I live in the city where Satan lives. Whether you're driving, whether you're in the store, sometimes it's like, man, I mean, can you just leave me alone for one day? And I can imagine what our brothers and sisters were thinking. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? You're right. All those things you're feeling, all those things you're seeing, he justified what they were thinking and feeling. You are in a bad place. That is not a good city. In fact, Satan has his own throne set up right there. Now you may think, well, what what does he mean by that? Well, Pergamum was a major center of pagan idol worship. And they set up many different types of Greek and Roman god uh, temples devoted to worshiping Greek and, and Roman gods. You know, we noticed that from the last church that the Caesar worship was in, instituted. Smyrna was about 40 miles off from Pergamum, so it wasn't that far. It's like going to New Jersey, Right? So in New Jersey, they're praising Caesar. They're saying Caesar is Lord. And so our brothers and sisters in New Jersey has to deal with that. Didn't they come down to New York and we got to deal with all this Pergamum stuff? And Jesus is trying to keep the disciples encouraged. In this wicked city, controlled by satanic influences that we have to go about every day. And not only that, we have to raise a family in the city where Satan lives. I don't know about you, but if you live in a place where Satan lives, you, may, you want to keep your family as close to Jesus as possible. Now, here's the thing. They built a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. There was a lot of satanic influences, but suddenly there was a spark of light in this dark city. There was a church. Someone planted a church right in Satan's backyard, and he did not like it. And so what he did, he did, he tried to do, he felt, well, this, you know, I I was able to put the squeeze on the church in Pergamum. I was able to get Ephesus to, to, to compromise, you know, to be complacent. So I'll just apply the same pressure I did in Smyrna and Ephesus in Pergamum. I'll even kill one of their own. Surely that will drive them off. But it didn't work. The church was steadfast. The church was still encouraged. And initially, Satan subjected it to all kinds of persecution. 
But when he found that that wasn't winning the war, he decided to change his strategy. If I can't get them from the outside, I'll get them from the inside. I have one point today. The truth, the whole truth, and. The truth, the whole truth, and how would you finish this this sentence? Nothing but the truth. That means you went to court or you heard, you watched some court show, right? And you're able to fill in the blank. Subconsciously, we're like the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, this brings us to the heart of the problem with the church at Pergamum. Because while they had the truth, while they knew the whole truth, they were failing to keep nothing but the truth. Church members at Pergamum weren't confronting false teachers who had infiltrated their ranks. And as a result, the church became a mess. Church members were getting caught up in all sorts of impurity and immorality. The work of the Holy Spirit was quenched. People weren't being saved. The church was filling up with hypocrites. And fewer and fewer people outside the church were showing interest in it. And worst of all, Jesus threatened to remove their lampstand, meaning he threatened to remove their church status. Satan had pulled one over on this church. He couldn't get them to break under persecution, so he had to change up his strategy. Now, Jesus sends this letter to the church, and in it he expressed his appreciation for them holding on to the truth and not not denying his name. They held on. They had conviction. They wouldn't outright deny Jesus. They held on to the truth long enough, but then he emphasized that their living conditions could have made denying him easier, but they didn't. And so Jesus went on to address something that greatly disturbed them. He was like, well, James, they did believe the truth. They didn't deny his name, so then why would Jesus have something against them? He went on to say he didn't like the fact that they were tolerating the teachings of Balaam, and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You see, we all have some religious experience before coming to Christ. Floor mentioned how she grew up in, in a religious home. I grew up the same way. And there were a lot of things that I, I carried along with me because that's what I was taught. It was a lot of traditional things and a lot of things that I couldn't Explain. I just did it. I said it and did it because that's what my parents told me to do. Now, we all at some point come to Christ that way. We bring all the baggage and everything that we have, we bring to Jesus. And Jesus helps us unpack that luggage. He helps us unpack that baggage. And one of those baggage, one of the luggage we carry is one with doctrine in it. We all have a doctrine bag. And we put all of our religious beliefs in that doctrine bag. And as we're sitting before Jesus and as he's helping us to understand, we open up that bag and Jesus goes in and he looks to see what's in there. 
Say, all right, you can keep that. You can keep that. I haven't seen that in a long time. Where'd you get those? That right there, though, you got to get rid of that. Now, we may think, well, I've been going to church, so why would, why would God want me to get rid of anything that has to do with church? Well, it's because not all doctrine connected to church is sound. Now, I would love to say and believe that there's no doctrine that creeps, that creeps into our church. And it's not, what you, it's not what's obvious. You see, Jesus said, you didn't deny my name. They knew enough to not deny Jesus. But there is one doctrine that crept into the church that Jesus was greatly disturbed by. I'm going to tell you in a second. I like to build up the tension, you know what I mean? These false teachers crept in, and they slowly but steadily changed the spiritual climate in that church. And they didn't even realize it until Jesus wrote them the letter. You guys are in bad shape, so much so that if it doesn't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So this had to be something serious if Jesus was threatening to remove their lampstand. Now, I don't know about you, but I love movies and stuff about gladiators and Greek mythology and all that. I love that stuff. Gladiator is one of my all-time favorite, you know, Marcus Aurelius, and I I love that stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, What you do in life echoes in eternity. I'm like, yes! Ah!" You know, I get... I get excited for movies like that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I get fired up. I get fired up. In Homer's Iliad, right, or, you know, Homer's Odyssey, the Greeks besieged Troy, the city of Troy, great city of Troy, for 10 years. They lay siege on the city, but was unable to defeat it. They were unable uh, to bring it down. And then the warrior Achilles was killed. And many wanted to give up the fight. But the king of Ithaca, Odysseus, came up with a plan to get the Greek army into Troy. Now, Troy was a fortified city. There's no way. If you don't believe me, watch the movie. Odysseus came up with a plan to build an immense wooden horse which supposedly looked something like this. Now, here's why this worked. We're talking about a place that worshipped idols. And they saw this as a gift from the gods. I mean, look how big it is. People were dancing around. They just thought, oh, yes, we got this gift from the gods and and, and, and this is how it started. This is how it kind of played out once how they, where they received the gift. What is this? An offering to Poseidon. The Greeks are praying for a safe return home. I hope the sea god spits in their offering. Let's them all drown at the bottom of the sea. This is a gift. 
We should take it to the temple of Poseidon. I think we should burn it. Burn it, my prince. It's a gift to the gods. Father, burn it. Intense, right? Now, Orlando Bloom's character, Paris, begs his father to burn this gift, to burn this thing. He had a suspicion. Something's not right here. No, it's a gift to the gods. And eventually, what ends up happening, as you see, the Greek army infiltrated Troy basically from the inside. They set fire to the city, killed everyone inside. You know, to the church at Pergam, Satan acted a lot like Odysseus. When Satan found that outside attacks, out, the outside siege against the church was ineffective, he changed his strategy. He sent the Trojan horse to create internal problems within the church. This is what Jesus called the doctrine of Balaam. Now, for those of you who don't know about Balaam, it's a great story. I encourage you. It starts in Numbers 22 and goes on to Numbers 25. Uh, but just to give you a, a recap, the Israelites, during their wilderness wanderings, had come to the borders of Moab. They had just conquered the Amorites, and it looked like Moab was their next target. To take over. So the king of Moab sent messages to Balaam to hire him to curse the Israelites. Balaam was a prophet, prophet of God. 
Now, to his credit, before Balaam answered the messengers, he prayed and asked God for advice. What should I do? God told him that he could not go with them or curse the Israelites. And that this is what Balaam told the messengers, and so he refused to go with them. But they wouldn't take no for an answer because they wanted to make sure they defeated God's army. So they upped the price, and Balaam went along. Along the way, God sent a messenger to Balaam, the angel of the Lord, and as a result of the encounter, Balaam confessed his sin and offered to return home. But instead, the angel of the Lord said, no, go with the Moabites, but only speak the word of God to them. Only tell them what God tells you to say. So Balaam obeyed. Instead of cursing the Israelites, he blessed them. And the king of Moab got furious. Four times he blessed them. And throughout the process, he held up the name of the Lord and refused to deny the word of God, much like the brothers and sisters in the church of Pergamum. But in Numbers 25, we learn that the king of Moab, at Balaam's advice, changed his strategy. In Numbers 25, verse 1, it says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual morality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. You see, the king of Moab infiltrated Israel's army by using his own brand of Trojan horse, Moabite women. They were sent to the camp of Israel to catch the eye of their men. And that's exactly what they did. They invited the Israelites, the Israelite men, to, to, to participate in their worship services, their feast of, full of, of immorality and idolatry. And in no time, the Israelite men are eating at the table of false gods, sleeping in the bed of pagan women, and bowing themselves down to these worthless idols. The result... God ordered the death of every rebellious man in Israel. You know, when you read this story, it's important for us to see how's Israel, how Israel's rebellious slide into idol worship. You know, a slide which, which led to the, the death of thousands. It's important for us to see how it began. In Numbers 31... Numbers 31, well, you can just turn there. Numbers 31, verse 16, it says, There, they were the ones, this is Moses speaking. It says, They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the word, from the Lord, and what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. It all began with Balaam's advice to the king. He told them to have Moabite women offer sexual companionship to the men of Israel. And so, by his advice, this Trojan horse comes into God's people and defeats them from the inside. 
Now, why would Balaam, a prophet of God, hang around and eventually offer advice to the king of Moab after he had already refused to deny cursing the Israelites and speaking out against the name of God? Why would he eventually offer the king of Moab this kind of advice? He did it because the king offered him money. See, Balaam wanted the best of both worlds. And that is the doctrine that crept into the church. You can have both. You can have a relationship with God, and you can have a relationship with the world. That is one of the most destructive doctrines that can creep into any church at any given time and pull people away. But what's worse is when it's allowed to fester in a church. Because it doesn't just take one or two people, and now it brings the whole church down. Because now they've gotten to a point where they just accept the compromise that they see. Instead of dealing with it, the way God instructed Moses to deal with it against Moab. He refused to curse the Israelites. He refused to say bad things about God. But at the same time, he compromised his position and came up with some evil advice that he knew would cause the Israelites problems. They followed the doctrine of compromise. We're called to follow a high standard of non-compromising our convictions. The Christians in Pergamum were following Balaam's lead. They wanted to enjoy the things of God, and at the same time, they wanted to indulge in the sin without feeling guilty, and they didn't want to be addressed. They didn't want to be disciplined. They didn't want to be punished. They didn't want anyone telling them to stop what they were doing. And so... They became a church of compromise. They compromised their faith. They started telling people what they wanted to hear. And you know the rest. What type of church are we going to be? It's not the type of church that I say we're going to be. It's the type of church we're actually practicing to be. If we're going to practice compromise, then we shouldn't expect anything different than what the church of Pergamum gets. Have you been compromising your convictions? Have you been compromising the word of God in your life? Have you been compromising it in others? Have you accepted compromise in others? Do you know someone right now who said Jesus is Lord and is living a double life? Because that's not going to help us. You know, as a parent, one of the constant lessons we try to teach our kids, and unapologetically, you need to choose your friends wisely. I think that's a lesson that God wants us 
to hear every week, every day. Choose your friends wisely. For the people we do life with, the people we hang out with, the people we choose as friends, the people we choose to marry, the closest to us, our inner circle will more than likely have a tremendous effect on us for either good or bad. There is a reason God forbade his people to intermarry with those outside of his commandments. Because they would lead them away from God. There is a reason as a church we have certain convictions. It's because we don't want anyone to lead you away from God. It's not because we're jealous. It's not because we're over-religious. It's because the Bible is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It has happened this way for millennia. You are not greater than the powers that are working against you. You are not stronger than Satan. You cannot defeat Satan on your own. You need the Spirit of God and His wisdom directing you. You're not smarter than God. If God is telling you this will happen, it's going to happen. You know who thought that it was smarter than God? Solomon. And God even testified he was the wisest man on earth. He thought he was smarter than God. No, these women ain't going to lead me away from you. And what happened? He ends up writing in his own letters, My son, listen to your father's advice. That's how he starts on Proverbs. Heed wisdom. Listen from me. Take it from me. 700 wide, 300 concubines later. My life is jacked up. I've been chasing after the wind. I did not listen to God. But no, that's not going to happen to us. We love us some Jesus. That's not going to happen to me. Listen to how some of the ways the Bible makes this point. Proverbs 28, verse 7. Young people who obey the law are wise. Those with wild friends bring shame to their parents. That's Bible. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become what? Associate with fools and get in trouble. Ephesians 5, verse 6 and 7, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse their sin. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey. That's a promise right there. Don't participate in the things these people do. The Bible is saying, guys, choose your friends wisely. You know, sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit. You are a good, look, you will be a good friend to someone. If Jesus is Lord, you're like, you, you will be a good friend. Stop thinking that, well, if I don't hang out with this person, I'm not going to make any friends. It took me five years just to find this friend. So what? If this person is leading you to do something stupid and foolish, why would you hang around that person? 
And I get it. I understand. You know, when I was a young man, I, I felt like, man, I can't find any other friends and who, no one else is going to like me. So I need to hang. I need to prove my loyalty to these guys. And then I get in trouble. And where are those friends? Nowhere to be found. God has been trying to teach us this lesson forever. And right now, he's telling the church, you're in danger of no longer being a church because you chose to compromise. Let's face it. Our inner circle is not a constant. Family circumstances change. Best friends move away. And when a void is created in our inner circle, it's only natural that we find ourselves looking for someone new to confide in. Someone new to take, to, to take us shopping, to go shopping with. You know, someone new to share a meal with. Someone, someone, you know, whether you're three or 93, you will always have a need for love and belonging. You will always have that need. We're not telling you to go off and be some loner. We're just saying, choose who you connect your life with wisely. And I believe God, I believe that giving us those desires for acceptance, understanding, love, that God has meant for them to be a good thing in our lives. But we need to be careful because given the opportunity, Satan will twist and turn, turn them into something evil. And then we'll find, it, we'll find ourselves in worse trouble. Because instead of seeking it the way God instructs us to, we decided, I'm going to do this my way. Satan will channel temptation through the people closest to us. And we have to be very careful who we allow to become part of our inner circle of friends. Because we don't want to buddy up with people who will ask us to lower our moral standards to compromise our conscience and convictions and to try to have it both ways. John tells us that the love of the world is hatred toward God. You cannot love both God and the be friends to the world. It doesn't work that way. I've tried it. And God made it very clear, James, it's going to be either me or the world. I'm like, you know what? The world has already left me jacked up. That's why I'm coming to you in the first place. So you know what? I'll give up the world. I mean, if you're coming to Jesus, it's for a reason, right? So why would you go back to the thing that led you to Jesus in the first place? You're smarter than that. Don't be so desperate for these things that God is trying to get you to, 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 that he has in store for you. Don't be so desperate that you are willing to sell your soul for a relationship. Compromise will never help you move forward. It will only make you more, more stuck and keep you from living a life that God has set up for you. So again, choose our companions wisely. If we don't, we will go the way of ancient Israel. 
And we'll find ourselves in a mess like the church in Pergamum. As we bring this to a close, I just want to remind us all that there is one companion you can travel through life with who will never get you to compromise, who will never lead you astray, who will never betray your trust, and that's Jesus. Jesus Christ, he is the truth, he's the whole truth, and he is nothing but the truth. And he will be that solid rock in your life if you choose to connect your life with him. Join us next week for part two of the Church of Pergamum. God be the glory.